Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 106 for August 23rd, 2007, mailbag number two. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway, on the web at www.astaro.com. And by Nerds On Site, looking to grow your IT service business? Find out how Nerds On Site can help. Visit IWantToBeANerd.com. Time to talk about security, and it's a listener mailbag episode. Steve Gibson is here from his secure lair, soon to be tented and fumigated secure lair in Irvine, California. Yes, indeed. Yep. I got to tell you, Leo, when I'm going through our the email we receive you know, in order to pull uh, questions and actually comments, uh, listener comments for the mailbag, I'm just... It gives me such a great feeling because we get so many people who are saying that this podcast matters to them so much. I mean, they. That's neat. I had I had one guy who just said, "I just wait for Thursdays. I look forward to Thursdays." That's so neat! Wow, yeah, really, I love that. Really. Well, and that's why uh, it's nice that you're so consistent with it because nobody is ever left behind. No, no podcast left behind. That's our philosophy yes, here. Come rain or sleet, <laughs> snow or termite fumigation, yes. there will there will be a podcast. Now, are they doing poisons, or are you going to have like orange peel injected into your home? No, it turns out there was a huge amount of of anti fumigation sentiment among the homeowners. People just didn't want the inconvenience of being pushed out of their home for a couple of days, and there are, it turns out, a whole bunch of spot treatment type things right. one of which you mentioned is this orange oil right and it turns out that that spot treatments can function unfortunately i'm way more of an expert on you this are topic than I needed to be. <laughs> spot, spot treatments can function when you know exactly where the problem is and if it's a localized problem right but but you have to be able to first of all you have to know where the problem is and you have to have access to it there are there's also um actually a, an effective approach is heat treatment you can actually just heat the little buggers to right. a point where Cook they them. they exactly they get cooked and speaking of that there's microwaves there's there's electrification you i've can, seen you yeah there's a lot of different things shock you can... them but the problem is nothing really deals with whole structure problems uh. better than fumigation and and frankly um we've got spiders coming out of the woodwork literally also and little those little mud wasp nest little oh, things oh yeah that, you know it's yeah don't mess it's with just, it it's you know it's a wildlife over here so <laughs> i'm i'm really looking forward to like the day after i can come back in i'm going to knock down all those little mud huts that the wasps have created because i know they'll that be they empty, will yeah. be empty and yeah. or deceased and they're not going to come out and you know get right, me for, right. for knocking their little igloos down so <laughs> they won't be mad anyway it's yeah it's never a dull moment so <laughs> as a consequence you and i are doing two podcasts today right. since next week i will be uh away from my machines actually i'll have a laptop at starbucks so i'll be hooked in wow. to the world but uh yeah 
You're going to yeah. spend the night at Starbucks as well or just the day? Actually, I was joking with a friend who was saying, where are you going to be staying? I said, oh, I'm going to stay at Starbucks. <laughs> you know, just keep keep those Quinty Venti Lattes coming. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, we have a mailbag and a lot of great questions from our listeners coming up. But before we do that, I do want to mention the great folks at Nerds on Site, our fine sponsor, one of our two fine sponsors, and they have been for some time. They're Staying with us because uh, they know a lot of nerds listen to this show. And when they say nerd, they mean that in the finest, nicest way. Nerds are people who are into computers, the kind who troubleshoot and tear apart and rebuild their own systems in their spare time. The PC and Mac experts out there, also Cisco and Oracle and fix-it technicians, website designers. If you're in business helping people with technology, you ought to know about nerds on site. Just go to IWantToBeANerd.com and find out about a nerds-only meeting near you nerds on site is growing and they need more nerds to service their customers the idea is you're an independent contractor and you stay that way you're in business for yourself you're just not by yourself Uh, you focus on the things you love to do and not the paperwork the business stuff and it's worldwide by the way not just the u.s but canada mexico england australia south africa bolivia i think they started in canada i know i've met a lot of nerds uh, on site up there by the way they also wanted to mention they now have a, besides a, a license for all nerds for a Spinrite, which is really cool, they also have a, a, a site license for a Starro Security Gateway. And they even do training in a Starro Security Gateway. So if you've heard about a Starro on this show and you want to know more about it, Nerds on Site's a great way to find out more. And their nerd, University of Nerdology gives you ex, extra training in 250 different core competencies. I mean, I tell you, this is great. If you want to know more about it, if you want to get a, Little help in hand in your nerd business. I want to be a nerd.com. We thank the folks at Nerds on Site for their support of this podcast. You have a little background music. You like that going. little piano? I'm thinking of having a little piano bar. <laughs> and every time everybody will have their own little song. It was perfectly timed as you were wrapping up the, your the, the Nerds yeah, on Site thing. Nerds on Site. Yeah. Nerds on Site. Um, let's see, should, uh, do you want to do a, uh, I know we don't have any errata from last week. and uh, We don't, although I did get a, a, a nice note that I wanted to share with people, sort of a, a, a reminder of a, of a non, a, an unusual application for Spinrite. Um, this was actually the result of a posting on our news group server. Um, when I was up in, in Canada with Mark Thompson, uh, a couple weeks ago, one of the things that he brought up was he said, you know, Steve, you really ought to consider affiliate marketing for your stuff. Oh, that's interesting. And it's not something that I had thought about, but I, I thought, well, let's discuss it in the news groups because, I mean, I the GRC news groups are just, I mean, I, I will again commend our listeners to to think about it as a, if they're interested in security and technology and this kind of stuff, um, it is a traditional news server and a so-called nntp news server but anybody with outlook outlook express um what's the the is it thunderbird i guess yep. is the communications yep. tool of like from the from the open source folks you know these are these are all very good workable news readers um i use gravity and and just because i have for years and it's it's powerful and does what i need but anyway the point is that We've got a fantastic bunch of news groups and mostly people. Of course, of course, it's, you know, the people who make the news groups. And so I said, hey, guys, you know, this affiliate idea, you know, the idea of giving essentially a commission to people who forward people to our site who end up purchasing Spinrite or other stuff in the future. 
um, you know, that's sort of the concept. You know, what do you guys think about it? Well, what ensued was a long discussion that ended up putting me off of the idea just because there, to, to do it really right and prevent there from being a problem of like flaky affiliates or like spamming affiliates who would become an affiliate and then spam in order to, you know, again, in a shotgun fashion, sort of get people to go to GRC. I certainly don't want any affiliation no pun intended, um, with such people. So it's like, and that uh, often happens. I have to say, I've seen, you know, a lot of antivirus companies use affiliates and it tends, it's hard to control them. Yeah. And you know, that's just not my thing. I don't want to, I mean, I, I love the fact that I've kept my life and my operations of, of my little company as simple as I have. And, you know, just adding some wild card that yeah. has a, you know, a strong possibility for failing seems like a bad idea. Anyway, skip, was responding in this thread, and and I and I uh, actually quoted me saying, "My feeling has always been that Spinrite was too narrow an appeal for shotgun marketing to work yes, well enough." Right, and and he responded, "Yes, always purchased in time of need." He said, "Saved my hard drive when I bought Spinrite in distress, and two other family drives a year later." He said, "Now for the testimonial. <laughs> my father bought Spinrite preemptively." He put in quotes because of my experience. And it says, Prenz, it didn't hurt that he was already a Steve Gibson fan for years, for reasons I am not sure of. <laughs> I have no he, idea why. We don't know why, but he seemed to like you. Uh, did not use it much, if at all. And, and, and then Skip says in Prenz, he and I are like this. Buy a good product on principle if we are likely to need it in the future. In this case, he has never used Spinrite to recover lost data or fix a problematic hard drive. So then he says... Then his TiVo failed. Oh, boy. Random skips and jumps in recorded programs. From Steve's Security Now podcasts, I suggested that my father dismount the drive from his TiVo box and run Spinrite on it. Voila. One very, in all caps, happy father who did not lose a couple of programs he didn't want to go without. And he said, friends, and they are not soaps, they're science programs. Uh, and now a rock-solid, funct- fully functioning TiVo without the Security Now podcast, quote, advertisements, unquote, about working even with TiVo, I would never have thought of suggesting Spinrite in this situation. So that was Skip's note, and I just wanted to remind people of that. The fact is that, you know, essentially Spinrite will run on any drive anywhere, um, and even in the increasingly popular DVRs that can get hot that do tend to use their drives extensively and you know i've gotten lots of email from people who said hey you know spinrite fixed my dvr i didn't know it would but i'm i'm glad so i just want to remind our listeners that uh, that that's the case in case people haven't heard me mention that before it's operating system and file system independent it doesn't it doesn't operate at that level right way way below that and so uh yeah because people have used it on ipods you use it on a linux box doesn't matter yeah, in fact, I in reading the through emails this morning to prepare the um, the the set of of I don't want to call them questions. The questions is what we tend to call them, but mailbag are more you know sort of commentary stuff. You know, interesting things that our users are feeding back to us about their discoveries or their solutions or or, or whatever. But one of those was a guy who discovered that Spinrite would run in a properly configured VMware box 
on his Linux machine. He was using Linux and he, he had VMware running on it. And there's a, there's a, a mode in VMware where you can give that virtual machine direct physical access to the drive, hmm. which is what Spinrite needs. Now, this has raised the question that I haven't answered is, would VMware running on a Mac so configured also allow you to run Spinrite on a Mac? Because without, the, without booting out of it. it well, the, well, the problem is the Mac is, is EFI based. The right. Intel Macs use another generation of the BIOS from, the, from what Spinrite was, was born and bred on, the BIOS, the BIOS, the basic I.O. system, input-output system. And Spinrite is still dependent on some of the BIOS functions, which are not present in the EFI. So you can't boot Spinrite on, a, on an Intel-based Mac directly. And what, we've, what we tell people is, well, you know, I mean, if you're so, – well, of course, it means that it's very inconvenient to run it just occasionally to, pre to prevent in a preventive maintenance fashion to prevent there from being problems. You have to pull the drive out. Right. And, and people do, and it fixes their Macs that way, but it's a, you know, it's a pain in the Mac. Right. So – I don't know. We'll have to try it. There's new VMware. I've been playing with it on the Mac, and it's, it's pretty impressive. Version 6? Uh, Fusion, they call it. It's the uh, Mac version, and it's only oh. eight, it's only eighty dollars, which is nice because the the big to big boy for uh, VMware is very expensive. And that's different, obviously, than Parallels because I know that Parallels has this new feature where you can run Windows like windowed right there right. alongside your Mac application. And VMware does that too. Uh, wow, they have a different name for it, but it's the same thing. I mean, I would say feature for feature, VMware is. Pretty much identical to Parallels. The only uh, thing, of course, VM adds, whereas is those uh, appliances that you could run the right. VMware appliances, which is kind of neat. And we're we're actually we're going to have a mention of that in our oh. in our mailbag. Well, today. let's get to the mailbag. This is uh, our second mailbag episode, and Steve's asked me to read the questions after the first one. So uh, I'll be the I'll be your voice. You're the reader, Leo. You do a great job <laughs> with that. That's my profession. So uh, Mike Gunn starts us off. He listens in San Francisco, and he says, "Irises do change." We were talking about irises as a biometric tool. And he says, the last time I went to the optometrist with my kids, uh, he told me that they suggest taking a picture of the iris. As you age, things like diabetes and the like changes your iris and how it looks, and they can even see signs of disease by comparing the original picture, the baseline picture, with a new picture. Uh, and he mentions Robert Heron, who came back. I, I don't know, did he have a detached retina? He did have some sort of eye surgery. Um, so that would have changed his iris, I guess, as well. He also says uh, you might ask the optometrist for a copy of your iris for a extra special desktop picture. <laughs> Ir irises are pretty. It would actually be beautiful, wouldn't it? Yeah. In fact, there was a I, I was looking at one the other day. Uh, coincidentally, the the most recent issue of Scientific American has an article about how the movement, the the twitchy movement of our eyes, which actually Jeff Hawkins talks about in mm -hmm. On Intelligence and how mm -hmm. it's necessary that images be in motion against our retina and our eye is constantly twitching in order to create a delta, essentially, a, a changing image on our retina, which is what our brain needs in order to process I images. Anyway, this, this, there's one photo of a just a spectacularly... And I guess it's unretouched, but it's a spectacularly symmetrical looking iris. I know that when I, you know, I stare at mine, as I do from time to time, because I'm a, a hard contact lens wearer still, um, you know, mine iris does have some character to it. It's, you know, it's got some wigs and wags and, you know, it's, 
it's I could see how mine may not look like anybody else's, but the, the, this one in Scientific American was just like just beautifully symmetric yeah. and clean looking and different than mine. Maybe it was a young iris and well, mine's getting old. And we should point out that your your fingerprint changes also, but I think it's if they're, if they're looking at uh, basic fundamentals that uh, those don't change significantly. I would. Right. I mean, I don't think they expect it to be identical any more than they expect identical. Right. Martin Yeomans of Memphis, Tennessee, has speaking of Jeff Hawkins, an interesting. A question, he says he's an occupational therapist and a member of Mensa. Big brain type guy. He uh, had some interesting thoughts after reading on intelligence by Jeff Hawkins. Uh, He says he heard an article on NPR a couple of years ago about research at Dartmouth relating to the auditory cortex. He actually gives us a link to the story. It's still up on the NPR.org site. But it's interesting. What they would do is they would play music uh, while monitoring the... Uh, activity in the auditory cortex, the part of your brain that's hearing the music, when the music stops, so would the activity. And except if you knew the song. If you knew the song, your your brain would continue along as if it were filling in the gaps, which is, I think, fascinating. So he suggests this might be useful in national security. <laughs> Get this. Uh-huh. <laughs> While monitoring a subject's brain waves, with or without his knowledge, expose him to iconic music from the various regions of the world, the U.S., the Europe, the Middle East, China, determine which ones he's familiar with based on his involuntary audio cortex response. Isn't that kind of a cool idea? I thought that was really interesting. It is. You know, it's a, like a way of extracting whether somebody is familiar with, with specific music that they would be familiar with or not based on their history. And it's a way that your brain gives that away involuntarily. Well, and by extension, as you get better at monitoring the brain, there's all sorts of things you can learn. I mean, you could make a pretty good lie detector test that way, I'd imagine. Uh, Anyway, he says, uh, do you think this technology could be used as part of a multi-factor security system? Instead of a password, get this, you'll learn a song. When I want access, the system plays snippets of music to me and measures my brain's reaction. In a few seconds, I could prove that I'm me in a way that could not be spoofed or defeated. Uh, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I read the story on N- or I listened to the to, to the blurb on NPR and and tried to poke around and do some more research so that I could find out exactly what it means to, to do a brain scan. You know, as, as we all remember, you can there is like, you know, you can attach electrodes all over your scalp and you can pick up so-called brain waves. And, you know, we've all seen the medical shows where they say, oh, no. This person is in a coma. He's got no brain activity because he's got, you know, 12 lines of are all flat and there's no little little high frequency or low frequency stuff. And then, of course, there was alpha waves that would show this and beta and theta and so forth. But in order to determine specific auditory cortex functions, you need, you know, either little probes that have been poked down into your gray matter or some sort of of, you know, the the article just refers to it as a brain scan, and and where there's no other detailed information. So, it seems to me that this is going a little far to to acquire something you know. Uh, and, and actually, he, um, he makes a point, or I'm asking the question: Should this be considered something you know or something you are? 
because of course right, the, right. The it nature, crosses the line exactly it really does because the nature of this is we're asking your brain which is something you have or i got <laughs> something, you, something are. you are yeah. it's asking your brain involuntarily whether this is something you know or not hmm. but anyway i thought it was just a, it was a fun comment from a listener that i wanted to share because i, I think it's impractical from the standpoint of we don't currently have the technology to to um without a great deal of inconvenience do a scan of a particular region of the brain at the level of resolution and specificity that this kind of test would require yeah so yeah but you know a cool idea interesting absolutely Absolutely. Uh, Daniel Barber must be a sysadmin because he's worried about U3. He's even more worried about U3 than we are. We talked about uh, these USB U3 drives. He says it's even scarier. It's possible. There's, there's just to fill, remind you, they're the, they're the drives that automatically, the thumb drives that automatically load software uh, using this U3 technology. He says it's possible to create a custom CD ISO, use the U3 updater application to flash the drive with that custom CD-ROM ISO, thereby allowing any application that can normally be run through the auto-run command on a regular CD-ROM to be executed when the U3 drive is inserted. Basically, that's how U3 works, is it, it mounts a CD-ROM ISO. Right. Um, he says there's already an online community creating uh, USB appliances using this technology. There's one called Switchblade that allows a user to quickly grab Windows logon hashes, stored passwords from IE and Firefox, and so forth, and store that info on the thumb drive. Another USB hacksaw, this is a good one, installs a compromised VNC server on the host machine, opening it up for further attack and remote control. We've actually demoed this on the uh, on Call for Help some time ago, over a year ago, with a U3 drive. It's really scary. He, he reminds us about uh, iPod slurping, too, which has been around as long as iPods have been around for a while. People would go into the Apple store with their iPod, plug it in, and copy the uh, you know software onto the iPod, and then leave. He's uh, he's looking into ways to disallow U.S. drives completely through group policy uh, for GP edit on my network to try to mitigate the threat. I agree. I think a auto run auto mount drive is not a good idea. Well, and I guess the, the, the this caught my attention because it brings up a good point, which is that USB the the whole USB interface, as convenient as it is, is also a potential serious security threat. Which, of course, corporations are now becoming increasingly aware of as time goes on i mean the 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 drives are called thumb drives because you know obviously they're the size of your thumb so they're very easy to get in and out of somewhere and and something like this this um usb switchblade where you literally you could approach a machine plug this thing in thanks to the fact that it's u3 based technology which which auto mounts a cd you can have that CD run anything you want to, and in this case, the idea is you just you approach a machine, you just stick this little USB thumb drive into this this the system. It immediately runs software, which sucks out a whole bunch of of potentially incriminating and and private information from the machine, and then dismounts itself. Well, it's and worse you, than that, Steve. Actually, there, uh, Darren Kitchen on Hack Five showed us a very common hack. Where uh, you you walk up to a library, plug in this USB drive, it auto runs. What it does is it copies a, a Trojan onto the system, which logs everything for the next w- week or whatever. Then you come back, plug your drive in. It says, "Oh, the Trojan's already installed," and it copies the data from the Trojan. 
Right. So, so it's an even worse attack because it can. It's basically a keystroke logger. Right. I, I, it seems to me, and and I know of of many corporations that are now deliberately disabling the oh they're so convenient USB interfaces on on the machines that they deploy throughout their enterprise. You know, again because their their policy is look employees, we do not want you bringing your stuff from home. Of course, uh, a USB even in a benign application is a potential vector for infection. If someone brings infected applications or spyware-laden applications from home because they want the convenience of having access to them uh, to those things at work, then USB is the means by which those those can those those, those can travel and transit. And so it really does represent a, a a growing security threat to to machines that you want to have otherwise locked down. It's fairly easy to turn off auto run. However, it's a simple reg hack, or, or you could do it in the auto run. Uh, set up and and then it wouldn't auto boot the right and you know many security conscious people it's one of the first things we do is we say hey i do not want a disc inserted in even a regular cd inserted into my computer to take off and run i want to have the opportunity to open browser you know the uh, internet uh, the windows explorer and look at the disc and then deliberately run what i choose to run yeah Abby Beckert of uh, Cairns, Australia, says, hey, has a good point. We talked a little bit about how videos and JPEGs could be dangerous. We even speculated you could be infected by uh, going on YouTube. And, and of course, he points out that, that that's not possible. He says, uh, f- first of all, that sites that allow you to upload JPEGs often resize the JPEG and change the compression level. And at that point, that would damage any buried malware in there. YouTube, of course, converts everything you upload to Flash. So if you're looking at a YouTube Flash video, it's been munged enough that anything that was embedded in the original video would no longer be a vector of attack. Yeah, I really liked his comment, and and he's absolutely right. And I wanted, I thought it was it was very useful to to sort of share this notion with our listeners. The idea being that that what it is in a, for example, in a JPEG, we we do know there are JPEG exploits and uh, it, it's certainly conceivable that there would similarly, and this is what we were talking about in, in uh, two weeks ago in Q&A number 22, that there could be video exploits. The idea being that the an otherwise valid image, for example, in, in the JPEG case, would, would have deliberately corrupted, that is to say deliberately designed data that would force a buffer overrun, a buffer overflow, just like data coming in over the internet is able to do so in, unfortunately, so many internet-connected applications and, and components. So you would, you would have something that looks like a JPEG image in as much as its extension is .jpg when, when Windows then or whatever operating system was the target of this tried to display it because of a of a vulnerability, you know, a bug in the display code, this this deliberately crafted sort of pseudo JPEG would allow program code contained in that JPEG file to be run on the computer. So the point is, and 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 this was the point that that um, this listener was raising is that when you do anything to this image, which 
is going to, you know, reprocess it. For example, you're going to resize it. You're going to change the compression level in the JPEG. You're, you're completely interpreting the image back into image form and then recreating it, you know, again in, in a valid format. So, so that, that process of, of making any change to it would completely just blow out any malware that had been hidden in the image. And so he, he really makes a, a very good point. He also says that, you know, if you went to some maybe, you know, off the mainstream site, he called it a knockoff site, that, well, if they weren't doing reprocessing, if they were just posting these things up, then you still have this problem. But it's certainly the case that that anytime you you convert that to a real image and then recompress it, you know, the bad stuff is gone. And then the example we used, which was an embedded JPEG in a banner ad, the most notorious one is the one that happened on MySpace, but it's also happened to Tom's Hardware. Those are being served up complete and uh, hack full of the hack uh, by the ad server. So yes, that's, a very, that's, good point. that's so, very different. So you shouldn't assume that video is safe, but you're right that if it's if it's on a site where you upload something to the site and the site modifies it, that modification kills any bad germs in there. It, it you know, at this point, it really it, it really would. Now, it's worth mentioning just to sort of cover the bases that the from early 2006, the Windows Metafile exploit was not a buffer overrun, remember? It was a function of Windows Metafiles, which had been designed in from the beginning. So there's an example of a valid image format which would survive this kind of change. Oh, interesting. Okay. So just, you know, I mean, the, 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 I guess the point is that there are two types of problems. There's, you know, a valid, a valid use of something that Microsoft didn't want to keep in that format, which was designed in from the beginning, which was always the point that I had made. And there are, there are flaws in the image rendering code, which can be exploited, which is a very different kind of problem. And of course, that that would get um, completely pruned out. Right. Jared, in uh, Calgary, Alberta, Canada, has a clever web spam bot avoidance trick. We were talking about CAPTCHAs as a way of avoiding spam bots. He's come up with a solution that blocks 99.9% of the spam sent to his blog. Well, wow, I want to know about this. So does the world. He says it's, it's he calls it a double honeypot. My online web form has three email fields one that is hidden using CSS styles. In fact, to add to the complexity, inherits it from a parent container, so it's not even immediately obvious what's doing if, going on if you look at the CSS. I've found that most bots fill in all the email fields, just one, or just the first two it encounters. The hidden one is the second one. So, he says, if it doesn't fill in the second visible email field, the form rightly complains, as if he were a regular user. However, if the data is filled into the invisible field which I I guess only a bot can see, it will assume a bot as there is warning text if the user has CSS disabled to not enter data into the field and the form reports success in sending the comment even though it just goes straight into the bit bucket. Now, I don't have to go to WordPress anymore to filter out the cruft nearly as often. It just automatically goes straight to the garbage. The few spam comments that do make it through my honeypot I think are actually people plugging in the spam, which, by the way, is happening more and more. It's not robots, but anyway... But I have the time to moderate those comments easily now. I find this an ideal compromise that won't turn away potential commenters with confusing and or frustrating games. Interesting idea. I thought it was a cool idea. Yeah. So so he, he clearly has the typical 
you know, put your email address in here right. and then for confirmation, put it in again, right. which, uh, which we're all used to because people have a tendency. In fact, Leo, you'd be surprised how often um, uh, people don't type their email address in the same way twice. It's, <laughs> I'm not surprised. It's amazing. Anyway, so he's got that. But w- what, what he cleverly did was he essentially created in, in, in terms of the, 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 the flow of his page – he has a second field in between the first and the, what looks like the second, but which is actually the third in terms of his, his actual HTML. And naturally, bots will tend to either fill in two or fill in all of them because they, too, need to confirm that they've specified their email address properly each time. But, but by deliberately making the second one invisible, humans will only fill in the first and third, and the bot doesn't know to do that. Anyway, I just thought it was very clever and a, and a sort of a simple way of dealing with at least bot spam on, on websites. Hmm. Very interesting. Brendan writes from Bismarck, North Dakota, with a discovery. I discovered something that may be of interest to you. You may recall the thumb drive discussion that was unlockable via biometrics. Here's a thumb drive that is only accessible using the correct built-in keypad combination. Oh, a combination thumb drive. It's a combination lock thumb drive called Flash Padlock made by Corsair. Any thoughts or opinions on a thumb drive like that? Well, see, I think that would work great. Well, actually, it is pretty cool. Um, uh, it's uh, either twenty nine ninety five for the one gig version or thirty nine ninety five for the two gig. It has a... Um, it's got five buttons, so it's uh, you, you, you've probably seen those like um, uh, door locks on cars where where they have uh, buttons uh, one and one and five no one and six share the same button and then right. two and seven and right. three and eight and right. so forth. Um, so it's got so instead of like being a ten keypad, it's a five keypad. Um, it's it's a dongle. Is that any better than a five keypad because it's got two no. numbers on it? No, I it's think five only, keys. I, it's exactly. I think the only reason they do that is that someone can say, "Okay, my combination oh. is three, two, six, seven, They eight, can use three. all nine digits so that exactly. they can make it be something, anything they want. Maybe, maybe they want it to be like their birthday right. or their date of birth or or their social security number or something, you know, horribly insecure <laughs> like right. that. Right. But. But still, we want to give them all their their numbers and that uh, are on there anyway. So, so okay, this thing is a it's a longer dongle so that it's got room for all this. It it incorporates a three volt lithium cell. I should mention, Leo, that I've bought I've ordered two of them. They're now on the way because I need one to play with and one that I'm going to open up because I just want to see what's inside. Um, it doesn't apparently actually encrypt the contents. There is a the company they got the technology from has like a more fancy, powerful one where the code you enter is used as the cryptographic key to perform on the fly encryption and decryption as the data is flowing to and from the flash ROM that's also contained inside. So this one is a is somewhat less secure in that I'm I'm almost positive I like couldn't verify this from any of the documentation on their site it's basically it's it's it functions as a traffic cop in between the flash rom and 
the USB connector so that only if you enter all this in do you end up being able to connect to your flash drive, which would mean that, you know, if the NSA or the FBI or somebody really, really wanted to get at the data on this drive, they would be able to do so. They just by, open it up. If by opening it up and then rewiring it and bypassing right. the the out the little um, extra security chip, but for many people, I think this is it really functions as a very nice solution. Of course, there's no software running on your system. It's platform neutral. Windows, Mac, Linux, you know, anything you could plug it into a Coke machine that, that, that had a USB connection and it would work just fine. Um, so it's a it's a neat idea. It, it uses this little battery because sometimes it might be inconvenient to to have to dial the combination when the USB drive is in its it you know like mounted on the computer. It might be like behind your laptop or upside down or something. So the way it works is you're able to press the, uh, there. There's a sixth button that has a little key symbol on it. So you press that to sort of wake it up and turn it on. Then you have five seconds to begin dialing your combination, which can be up to 10 digits long. I was very glad to see that. It's not like it's a three-digit pin or something. Mm -hmm. It could be like really hard to brute force. And then once you do it, a little it's got also three lights, a red, a green, and a blue light. The blue is for access, and then the red or green have different UI functions saying I'm locked or I'm not locked. So it then unlocks it, and you then have... 15 seconds, which actually, if you look at the clock tick, I mean, 15 seconds is a long time to get this plugged into your computer. So you don't have to have it plugged in while you're unlocking it. Anyway, I, I really think it's a cool solution for that'll have you know many nice applications. So I wanted to bring it to our listeners' attention. The, the company is Corsair, C-O-R-S-A-I-R. And if you just put into Google, you know, my favorite starting place always, you just put in Flash space padlock you get a bunch of hits um i got mine from amazon it's actually more expensive on amazon but i like amazon and they know who i am and all that so i i was willing to pay a little more for the security there's a, a company that i've used in the past called atacom atacom dot com is uh is another good supplier and they've got them at that twenty nine ninety five and thirty nine ninety five price and you know uh, you know on first blush this looks like a nice a nice little gizmo. I will uh, I'll report back after I've received mine and had a chance to play with them. Miles Bosworth of Asheville, North Carolina says he's dubious about PayPal. He's one of the people who he says purchased Spinrite without a need at the time I purchased it, but an appreciation of the effort you put into security now. Incidentally, since he's purchased Spinrite, it's paid off. He repaired his wife's laptop that wouldn't boot and fixed a friend's PC which was stumbling over multiple disk errors, so he's glad he had it. But actually, he's calling or writing about PayPal. Uh, we were talking about the PayPal security key, and of course, I use PayPal for donations. He says, as a very infrequent PayPal user, using it only for purchases that I make online with no plans to sell stuff or transfer money to family, etc., I use PayPal only when it's the only option, primarily because I disagree with their policy of arm twisting for me to submit what I see clearly as unnecessary and potentially dangerous to me information to anyone, including PayPal. Specifically, why is PayPal so darn insistent about having me verify my account by sending them information about my checking account? I only use a credit card for payments, and there's never been an issue with any transactions, yet I continue to be hounded by PayPal about verifying. I, I, I notice this myself. I, they, they always ask you, 
And Leo, the, the reason this is here is that I feel exactly the way yeah. this guy does. Yeah. But let's keep going with, with his comment. He says, I have a very low comfort level with sharing additional financial account information, specifically my checking account, which in turn links to my credit and savings in the form of overdraft protection I have in place. I'm not going to grant what I see as excessive and possibly very dangerous uh, access to a checking account that will never be used in any manner in any transaction with PayPal. I'm not even comfortable that when I enter my credit card information, I don't have the option not to add this information, which PayPal automatically retains. I'm never given the choice. I got into a fix with them several years ago where after going back and deleting a card, I could not use that card again on PayPal. I don't know if they still enforce that silly little rule. Otherwise, I never leave my credit card info on sites that have the features such as Amazon, which gives you a choice at the time of purchase. At the bottom of the last email I got from PayPal confirming my transaction, he he, he pastes in the whole get verified uh, pitch, which basically yep. means you give them a credit, a uh, the checking account information. The way they verify it, by the way, is they deposit two random, very small deposits of just a few cents into your account. And then they ask you, did you get these deposits? And if you say yes, then they said, okay, it's your account. Or something like that. Or they ask you what the amount is, and if you tell them the proper amount, then they say, okay, you've verified it. And he says, maybe I'm being a bit paranoid, but I'm not about to let PayPal or any other company have access to my accounts when there's absolutely no need. Multiple communications with PayPal questioning this has only resulted in some canned boilerplate responses and nothing I would see as a valid reason. You know, we should have asked that of uh, our guest a couple of yes, weeks ago. I, I wish we did. This, this is exactly, this is what bugs me so much is I don't, I don't understand, maybe you do, Leo, what it is about PayPal that has them desperate for my, for my checking account information. But there are sites that will, for example, only ship to a veri- the so-called PayPal verified address. Or, um, and, and, and then there's this notion of not being verified. I finally had to do exactly what this guy did, which was, okay, fine and gave them a checking account um, information. They did exactly as you said. They deposited some some little, uh, you know, specific amounts into my account. I had to tell them that, that they had. Well, then, do-do-do, I'm verified. Yay. Except that now this PayPal always defaults to wanting to pull money <laughs> from my checking account, which, you know, and which is a problem because, you know, my bookkeeper runs that for me. I don't want to have to be constantly telling her what I'm doing. It's so much more convenient to have PayPal pull from my credit card. And, you know, once money is pulled from your checking account, it's gone as far as I know. I don't know how much, you know, like uh, insurance or, or protection PayPal gives, but, but basically I don't want money pulled from my checking account. The problem is there's no way to change the default that I've been able to discover, and I've looked around PayPal site. So every single time I now buy something from PayPal, I have to go in and when I'm, you know, authenticating myself, change the funding options Go in, tell it no, don't take it from checking, take it from credit card. Then they give you like an are you sure screen telling you why this isn't really not what you want to do. I mean, it is just infuriating. Well, I I could tell you a couple of things, uh, not to justify it, but uh, I could tell you a little bit about... To explain it. To explain it. First of all, they have to pay credit card fees, and so they prefer not to. So, Ah. So the transaction is cheaper for them if it's directly from your account. 
So that's 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 the primary reason. You'd think they'd offer you the option, and I, I see no reason not to. The verification, I think, is they, they might have a, a case here for it being a legitimate security thing. Remember, the biggest problem that PayPal and, and any system like this has to face is fraud. Somebody, Credit card fraud, right. Yeah, uh, and somebody posing as somebody else. So it's it, the, the 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 authentication really does there there and then verify your person who you are. They've got your credit. They've got information, right? And uh, and I think that that's you know that would be the excuse they would give. Uh, I agree with you, and I, I I wouldn't verify for the longest darn time. At some point, they 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 stop you from. They won't let you do any more transactions. Uh, you actually have to verify it. Or I think some, maybe there is there like a transaction limit where you can only do a certain yeah, amount of money something unless like you're that. verified. Yeah, yeah. Something happens. I, I, I ran up against the limit um, and I, I think I finally verified. And of course, it's been completely safe. I think they have a safe system. And I think the verification is one way they have of making it safe. I mean, at that point, there, it would be much more difficult to defraud people. Once you've been verified, right? Yes, and and I'm glad I'm verified. I mean, it is a benefit to be that. I just wish it didn't th- that they didn't constantly fight you over yeah. where money is going to be. Taken. They should allow you to choose your default money uh, source. source. Yeah, yeah, that's ridiculous. Um, I you know, and and frankly, I think that that's you know, it's unfortunate. I understand his reluctance to give that information. I was very reluctant too. Uh, and and PayPal has in the past certainly had a. Kind of not not the bet a checkered past, and I think a lot of people still remember those days, and aren't aren't sure that they want to trust PayPal. Yeah, that, but I do think they're doing better. No, well, they are, and and one of the ways they're better is things like you know if you if you take a credit card out of the system, they don't let you put it back in. I mean, they're they're a little strict, and I think that's one of the ways that they make it more reliable. Right. But I, I'm not certainly not making apologies for them. Um, because I no, yeah. I I would say that we've just <laughs> very made it very clear how we feel about yeah. that aspect yeah. of PayPal, and having that said that I I verified and you verified and I never yeah. do I only transfer money into my checking account I never use it to pay for anything. Yep. Um, now I I have to think I, I uh, pay from my PayPal account. And so it never asks to take money out of my checking account because I have money in my PayPal uh, right. account. Right, you have a positive balance in your PayPal right. account. Right, and so it always uses that by default. So I, I don't have the same issue you do with it, trying to yeah, take money out of my cr- checking account. Farron Constable of Manhattan, Kansas, has a note about encrypted hard drives. Just an FYI, he says, I seem to recall that when you discussed these new hard drives with built-in hardware encryption, you said they weren't available and probably wouldn't be for a while. Just wanted to let you know that ASI, a computer distributor, is currently selling laptops with the encrypted hard drives. He says, I seem to think that ASI had some sort of exclusive deal on these drives and or systems. Is that so? Well, uh, well, I wanted to mention, because I don't remember predicting when they would be available, um, but I have one. Um, I, I discovered a few weeks ago that they existed. This is the Hitachi drive. I don't know whether other manufacturers yet have those, but you may remember that Hitachi purchased the hard drive business from IBM, mm. and um, and for a while was still selling under that uh, under the Travel Star label, but now right. is it's largely under their own. Anyway, they've got a, a full range of of standard laptop drives with this very cool on the fly built in 256 bit AES encryption and anyway the the drive is here it's still in its little static protection sealed plastic silver bag i have not yet 
had a chance to play with it and learn whether you know, the, the thing I want to find out is exactly how does it work and does it require any bio support in order to be used? I haven't determined that one way or the other, but that'll be certainly I will I will close that loop with our listeners as soon as I, I get there. I did want to let people know, though, that they do exist. Excellent. And, and would it be more secure because it's built into the hard drive? Oh, yes. Well, the, the beauty is it's uh, somehow you give it a password, and maybe it's the standard un- BIOS unlocking password. Um, wh- when you give it that password, then it hashes that into a 256-bit encryption key so that every sector it writes to the drive runs through AES 256-bit encryption so that the data physically stored on the drive is encrypted, and then, of course, the reverse process happens upon reading. The point is that literally no force on Earth can then obtain the data for that drive if the password is not known. Okay. So, so unlike unlike hard drives which lock themselves, I mean that locking. I mean, in fact, we were just talking about this with regard to the uh, that that Corsair Flash padlock. You know, it's it's locking the contents of its EEPROM, but it's not encrypting the contents of the EEPROM at at this level at this stage. Similarly, a hard drive, the hard drives that have been around for many many years, they have locking technology that will that will prevent somebody from easily reading the drive but you know at the at the here's a subpoena uh to the drive manufacturer unlock this drive level that can still be done but not if you're actually encrypting all the data that goes on to the drive and i just think it's very cool especially in a laptop mode that 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 would be offered yeah yeah Edward, uh, just up the coast a little ways, about five miles in nearby Santa Rosa, shares a discovery. He says, just a quick note to let you guys know that VeriSign's OpenID platform, that's the one that uh, we were talking about with a security key that comes from PayPal. It's at pip.verisignlabs.com. Now supports the use of PayPal security key. Well, I think we knew that, didn't we? That it was part of the PIP. Actually, I told you about this. I wanted to share it with our our listeners. Oh, okay. And we're going to talk about it in in detail next week. So here's the email he got from VeriSign. It says, strong authentication support via second factor credentials from the VeriSign Identity Protection Network. PayPal tokens can now be used uh, with PIP, along with the ability to have a one-time PIN sent via SMS or email if you've forgotten your credentials. I like that. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, and again, I want to, it's one of the two topics for, or actually maybe three topics for next week. PIP stands for Personal Identity Provider. And I just wanted to give our listeners a heads up about this. Actually, several people wrote in. So not just Edward in Santa Rosa, but a couple other people said, hey, I, don't know, I was poking around. And you may remember that w- when we had our uh, our friend on from PayPal, I hope he's still our friend after what we just proposed. I'm sure he is too. Um, He was talking about how PayPal is is, is essentially using the um, VIP, the VeriSign Identity Protection Technology, as their back end behind their whole token deal. And what I had mentioned to you, Leo, was that I did some follow up research. I found VeriSign Labs 
and the fact that they sell their own tokens and I bought three more <laughs> because they will sell you uh, as many as three of them. I don't know if it's three at a time or three total, but the, what, what's very cool is that you can register multiple tokens at the same time, and this solves the, you know, I've got one at home. Ah, and one, and so one. They'll, be, they'll work the same way. Exactly. Oh. Exactly. So anyway, this will be what we're talking about in greater detail next week. But I just wanted to acknowledge the people that had written in and said, hey, I found VeriSign Labs uh, is doing this stuff. He also uh, says he is now using pip.verisign.com as his primary open ID account, changing from claim ID. I use claim ID, too. So I will switch over because that means I can when I do my open ID verification, I'll use the dongle. Right. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> whatever whatever, you whatever call we it. call it. There, there was some discussion about that, Token. too, in our in, in our mail. Apparently, the official word is that a dongle is something that you plug into something right. like the old right. parallel parallel port dongles that right. were used for, for protecting high value software. And, all, and, and in fact, in, even to this day are still used for like expensive vertical market software. Right. Whereas a fob is a freestanding, you know, standalone thing that you don't plug into something so right. it's like okay right. that that that's actually our- is what i thought and it, well uh, I, to me a fob is something you put on your watch chain or your watch but anyway that's another matter george, george in ohio has discovered something great about our sponsor astaro he said i'd like to point out there's a really positive piece of information about astaro that you're not mentioning in the advertisements leo does on each episode well there you go i better find out huh he says i recently lost my long running and until now flawless smooth wall box we, we, Patrick and I have been talking about SmoothWall since Screensavers Day. It's a great, yep. great solution for an open source firewall. He says his processor fan died, cooked the machine. I thought this would be a good time to check out Astaro. Uh, he has a faster machine he just recovered, so he put it on that. He wanted to make sure he actually liked it before committing. So while he was out shopping online for a hard drive to throw into it so he wouldn't have to nuke the current OS, he dropped by the Security Now page, astaro.com slash security now, to make sure the hardware would be compatible and, uh, and I was actually going to mention this in the ad, but he noticed that there's a download option for a virtual appliance for VMware of the software. So if you're using VMware, there isn't a star. In fact, it's one of the most popular uh, appliances. He says he already has VMware Player, which is free, installed on the system for running Linux distros I'm testing. So I thought it was a perfect solution. I downloaded it and ran it, and I like what I see. I'm impressed that they had the foresight to package it that way for people like me who like to feel out the interface before we commit to installing it. Bravo, Astaro. Just thought you might want to mention that to your listeners. I found that, in fact, this week, too, uh, when I was testing out VMware Fusion for the Mac, I noticed that I could run a Starro security gateway on it. It's like one, like the number five appliance of all. Oh, very cool. Isn't that neat? Yeah. yeah. In fact, you can try a lot of... That's the, one of the neat things about VMware is uh, those appliances, and that's something that they have over Parallels. Parallels also might be in some doubt. I think there's a lawsuit over the uh, Parallels technology. Uh-oh. Um, a company that the Parallels guys worked for before they worked at Parallels. Oops. <laughs> says, that's our software. What are you doing? And uh, now uh, a European court has not issued a, a, a preliminary injunction against the sale of the software, but something to be aware of. At least we have a choice. Uh, if, if you haven't bought Parallels yet, I think VMware is a good con- contender. I bought Parallels, so I don't see any reason to run to VMware. It's very similar. Although some say it might be a little bit faster. Actually, that's Mark Thompson's contention. Mark Thompson, my friend from Analog X, he he believes Parallels just runs circles around VMware, yeah. although it, the performance is not something I have verified. I don't know. I don't know. They seem pretty similar. 
They yep. have to say. They, and they really some, ought to be. Yeah, they ought to be. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. They're both using this hypervisor mode and all that. But I, but I, uh, uh, I did have, I did see a number of comments from people who said VMware was faster. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things. It's there's a lot of psycholo- psychology involved in this. If you feel like it's going to be faster, it's going to be faster. Danny in Ogden, Utah, enjoyed our last uh, podcast about leak test. He said, I very much enjoyed the firewall leak test issue. But one thing you might want to remind your listeners is that while this is an important thing, it only applies to software-based firewalls. I currently work for Juniper, one of the big companies doing this. Router company. Yeah. yeah. He does tech support for their firewall and intrusion detection and prevention products. I'm proud to say our firewalls are not affected by such tactics. But then again, you already knew that. (laughs) Well, that's why we recommend routers. Frankly, yes, that's exactly the case. And I did want to mention that, you know, certainly Danny is correct that by being a box outside of the PC, you get a lot more security from a standpoint of software not being able to go in and uh, and disable your firewall. Uh, And in case of the router, that's one of the reasons that I strongly recommend people disable the universal plug and play support, because that is a vector by which software running in a PC could disable the security prevention and features of a router by de- by deliberately opening incoming s- ports statically on the router. That's what UPnP is was created for, and unfortunately, it was created without any security model at all. So it's just that's just you know a sore point for me. But on the flip side, the the problem that external firewall hardware has is it can't tell anything about what application generated the traffic. So what we were really talking about in the leak test episode was that the whole idea was a personal firewall, meaning a firewall software running on your PC. It had the the ability to go back and figure out which process was generating the traffic and then check its configuration to see whether that process had been authorized to send data to and from the internet, which of course isn't something that an external piece of hardware can do because there's no way for the hardware to know what process is emitting the traffic from the PC. All it sees is packets coming out, but it can't tell where they came from. Although a high-end router like a Juniper certainly does monitor outbound traffic. Well, well, it does. But again, for example, can't figure it, out who it, did it though. Exactly, and yeah. that's the real leverage that people who like personal software firewalls get behind is they like the idea of knowing who was controlling uh, or who who is generating whatever traffic that they're seeing, even if a bad guy could be lying about it. Exactly. <laughs> Which, to me, uh, obviates the whole point of it. I mean, yeah, okay, cool. It can tell you what the process is, but it's, it has no way of validating that that information is accurate. Oh, and the other problem is when you have something like servicehost.exe, which is meaningless. Yeah, it's just a a container for a whole bunch of Windows services. You lose the granularity of knowing well what service in the service host processor uh, is doing this. So yeah, that's a problem. Mark Painter, Sydney, Australia, has an interesting observation again about the fob dongle key. (laughs) <laughs> doohickey doohickey he says i obtained a paypal security fob dongle key which is a good idea but it occurred to me that a spoof paypal site could do a pop-up window for the key and simply accept any number that is entered the way to test it would be to enter a completely wrong number and if it accepts it 
then it didn't check. So security needs to be checked by using not logic rather than and expressions. I thought that was sort of an interesting observation. Of course, the the point this brings up is that what that there are two different things that we would like to have happen. Uh, the dongle fob key doohickey <laughs> is used normally when you're trying to authenticate yourself to the remote server. Right. Mar- Mark's point is that by lying, by deliberately lying to a the, the site which may be spoofing, you're authenticating it. Right, which, which was is a good, an, good point. Which is sort of an interesting point. Yeah, but I, I like have to it. point out that most of the time, when these guys, when you do, if you were to log on to a phishing server after you entered your name and password, it really doesn't give. It doesn't go on. It's, right. not, it's, it's not like it says, "Okay, good, let's do some more stuff." Yeah, let's uh, <laughs> uh, enter your security key. It's glad to have you it's that just, far. Bye. <laughs> Thanks. Uh-huh. See you later. And of course, you're protected if you have a dongle because even if you entered your dongle number, it's only good for the next thirty seconds. I've Correct. shown my dongle number on our Ustream feed during the radio show. People go, what are you doing? Said, Don't worry. <laughs> and in fact, you and I talked about this uh, on your, your KFI uh, syndicated radio right, show last right. week. And, and, we, and we had fun reading off our numbers right. Don't worry. as they changed. It's like, ah, it's okay because it's not going to be good. I have to say, I love that feeling. Yep. It's just, that's just so cool. And uh, I'm going to right away go to pip.verisign.com and make that my open ID provider because that means that if it, I, I'm correct in, in thinking that that means that whenever I did an open ID login, I'd have to use the fob now, right? You would have to use the fob, exactly, uh, given that you use Verisign as your open ID provider. provider. Right. Nothing would, would prevent you from having, you know, a diff- also a different open ID provider. And, uh, and, and what I like about the Verisign approach is that they do have. Um, the ability to simultaneously register multiple credentials and non-fob, I just hate that word, but you know, <laughs> non-fob authentication alternatives also. So, I mean, right. they're, they're really coming up to speed nicely, and we're going to be talking about it in greater detail next week. Cool. All right, Mr. Steven, uh, we are done, I think, for the day, except for uh, mention of Astaro. I should mention Astaro because they are our great sponsors. We were talking about them a little bit earlier. They make, in case you haven't heard, they make the Astaro Security Gateway. And uh, that is both software and hardware. It's a solution for businesses, but even for non-commercial users. Now, if you're a business, you're going to want to look at the Astaro Security Gateway hardware. It's it's about the size of a router, small router. Uh, but, boy, the security you gain, the control you gain over your network is amazing. It uh, inside that little box. I've got. I think I've got a 120 back here. And man, I just, I just love the idea. You've got best of breed open source and commercial software protecting you in every aspect of what you do online. You get email security. So there's anti spam, anti phishing, dual virus scanning for every email inbound. You get transparent encryption using either uh, Open PGP or SMIME. So. Your users are sending and receiving encrypted email. They don't even know. They don't have to worry about it. It just happens automatically. I love that. All my mail is signed automatically. Uh, you get web filtering, of course, like content filtering and an antivirus for the web. You get spyware, IM, and a P2P control. Basically, you're, you're locked down. And, of course, as you'd expect with a firewall box, you get network protection, the firewall, the remote access, the VPN, the intrusion protection, all in one box. Very affordable. And, in fact, you can try it free right now in your business by just calling them, 877, the number 4, Astaro, 877-4-A-S-T-A-R-O, 
And if you're a non-commercial user and you want to try it, of course, you can use the VMware appliance. Uh, that's really a cool way to do it. Or just go to astaro.com slash security now. I think they link to the VMware appliance there. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com slash security now. We really are glad to have Astaro be part of the show because they make the best. And we're really thrilled that uh, we can help introduce you to them. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com or call 877 the number 4 Astaro. We thank them so much for their support of security now. Steve Gibson lives, breathes, and eats security at grc.com. That's where you'll find Shields Up, Shoot the Messenger, Decombobulator, Unplug and Pray, Wisma. One day I'll read them all. One day I'll read every single thing that you do. And this will be a three-hour podcast. Also, Spinrite, of course, his daily bread, and that is uh, uh, S-P-I-N-R-I-T-E. In fact, you want to read the testimonials? Spinrite.info. Or just go to grc.com. That's also where you'll find 16 kilobit versions of the podcast, transcriptions by Elaine, notes, and every Security Now episode, all 106 of them, going way back two years. And counting. And counting. Congratulations once again. You are listening. You have the good taste to be listening to the best technology podcast for 2007, thanks to the podcast awards. And I thank our listeners once again for making that happen. Yes. That's really cool. Yes. Yes. Okay. A little macho moment there, but I'm I'm feeling better. I'm going to grab my fob, and we're going to get out of here. We'll be back next week. What are we talking about next week, Mr. G? Next week, we're going to talk about, as we mentioned here in passing, the VeriSign's Identity Protection, the VIP program. I also want to talk about uh, some changes I recently made to GRC's very popular Perfect Passwords page as a consequence of some feedback that I received and the fact that I'm currently dipping in and doing a whole bunch of work on the GRC site in general. Um, And so I'm going to talk about that a little bit. So you're saying the Perfect Passwords page wasn't perfect? uh, They were perfect enough, but they're even more perfect now. Even more perfect than ever before. And in fact, if even more perfect passwords wasn't too much of a tongue twister and too long, that's what I wouldn't call it. But I'm just leaving it perfect. Okay. Steve, we'll talk again uh, next week on Security Now. Thanks for being here. Security Now.